Hey, everybody, Jamie Uretzky on the lighter side of baseball, and you know when you hear that music, it is time for some good entertainment. And today, coming to you live from Kansas City, we are expecting to hook up on the phone with none other than Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. Bob has done an incredible job of keeping that dream alive for everybody, especially those of us in Kansas City that are rabid baseball fans. So uh, if you are ever in the city from out of town, or even if you live in Kansas City and you're looking for something to do as soon as this COVID-19 crisis is gone, which I think is going to be soon, you can head on down to 18th and Vine and visit the 18th and Vine district, have some great food, and at the same time go to the Negro League Baseball Museum and uh, see the incredible exhibits down there and uh, read up on the incredible journey of Negro League National League Baseball 101 years ago all the way to now. So that's going to be fun. And in uh, less than a week, we have opening day, which is going to be a blast. And so our show today is going to be featuring the uh, discussion with Bob on the Negro League Baseball Museum and the uh, efforts he has gone to to make that a viable institution here in Kansas City for all of us to enjoy. And so uh, I think it's going to be an exciting uh, interview. And in the meantime, next week we're going to do our 2021 predictions for the upcoming season with our good buddy and uh, most of the time co-host Craig Kashan. So that's going to be great. Who is going to be uh, his pick for not only the MVP and the Cy Young Award winners, Rookie of the Year, but also where he thinks the uh, division races will go, especially the National League Central, where he broadcasts for the Brewers, and uh, where I am a season ticket holder for the Cubs. And then we'll swing over to the other National League divisions and then come back to the American League Central, uh, featuring the Royals. And the White Sox were dealt a big blow with Eloy Jimenez, the player that was traded for... Jose Quintana uh, is out for at least six months and probably for the year, unfortunately. What a sad development for Jerry Reinsdorf and the White Sox. That really affected them in the playoffs last year when uh, Jimenez uh, was playing through an injury in the uh, playoffs last year. The Sox weren't the same team. And even though Rick Renneria unfortunately took the hit for that, it was nothing he could do about the injuries that took place right at the end of the year. Now... Uh, Tony Larusa has inherited the same problem, and that is that Eloy Jimenez uh, will be lost to him for probably the whole year. So that concludes the on the letter side of baseball's critical injury list, Eloy Jimenez. But more importantly, we are about to have a fun, fun time with Bob Kendrick. And I tell you what, the Negro League Baseball Museum is teaming with the uh, monarchs to play baseball in the independent league. We're going to talk about all sorts of fun things. We're going to talk about the rise of uh, Negro League baseball. We're going to talk about just life in Kansas City. And I got to tell you what, I'm so looking forward to this because Bob Kendrick is a great ambassador for the game of baseball, a great ambassador for the Negro League. And uh, he's the proof's in the pudding. What a great job he has done for the Negro League Baseball Museum. And I'll tell you what, if you folks have a chance to get down there and visit it, do so whenever you can. 
get your vaccinations, and head on down there. If you can't get down there, visit their store. Buy some merchandise. It's worthwhile and wonderful. And while you're at it, you listeners of On the Lighter Side of Baseball, brought to you by lots of people, (laughs) especially me, uh, get your checkbook out and send Bob a small contribution, a large contribution. Go down there and do some volunteer work, raise some money. It is a great cause, and I intend to do that. Uh, And so here we are on the brink of getting a Zoom call connected with Bob Kendrick. And yes, you can hear in my voice, I'm excited to visit with him. As you know, this show was inspired by uh, my good friend Dave Nelson and uh, not only my relationship with Dave, but my love for baseball. And so we'll find out where Bob uh, developed his love for baseball, his involvement with uh, Kansas City, and in particular with the Negro League Museum. So it's been a great union between the baseball fanatics in Kansas City and the culture brought by the Negro Leagues that are now 101 years old. So enough of me. Let's get to it. And let's get on with the call with none other than Bob Kendrick. Hey, everybody. We're back on the lighter side of baseball. And as promised, and I am thrilled to have the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Mr. Bob Kendricks, on the phone with me on a little Zoom call. And Bob, how are you doing this morning? James, I'm great, man. How are you? I am doing great. I am so excited to have a chance to talk a little bit about uh, you and about the Negro League uh, Baseball Museum, which as a citizen of Kansas City, for all the baseball fans, you have resurrected that institution and made it uh, a thriving, thriving part of our city right up there with some of the other gyms in town. So I want to thank you for that. No, well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I am so fortunate that I go to work each and every day, James, with an incredible team of folks who who are not unlike me. They believe wholeheartedly in what we're doing just how important the work that we're doing really is. And uh, that motivates all of us. I think we're all self-motivated. We want to do as good a job as we possibly can. But when you do something that you know is bigger than you are, that is one of the most gratifying things that we can ever do. We live in such a me society. And I understand it, you know, particularly with young people, they want to acquire, they want to get, they want to make as much money as they can. And I get it. We were all there at one point in time. But as I've tried to share with my own children, anytime that you can step outside yourself and do something that is ultimately going to be for others. And, and if we do our job well, we will leave something that will stand the test of time. And in its own way, it kind of leaves a legacy for all of us who are involved with this. Now, does it take on an even heightened meaning for me? Of course it does. You know, I've been involved with this organization now, James, for 28 years. It's still hard to believe. I started as a volunteer in 1993, and that's when I met Buck O'Neill for the first time. And like most who met Buck, I fell in love with Buck too. And then you just wanted to be on Buck's team. and as a volunteer, I just wanted to do whatever I could 
to help this organization that was documenting this wonderful story about baseball and American history that I really did not know. And I considered myself to be a baseball fan. And now I've stumbled into this kind of awakening. And, and man, I wanted to learn as much as I could. And James, I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the way I felt about it. But that is how this journey started for me as a volunteer. And now I get to call myself the president of this museum, which really, I don't run anything. My team does all the running of everything. They just let me act like I'm running something. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you have been uh, a very present uh, force in the world of baseball. Uh, last year was the 100-year celebration of the formation of the Negro League National uh, League, and then they joined with the Negro League American League for uh, a period of time that was marked, unfortunately, with the century mark being during the, the pandemic and the, the COVID-19. So I'm hoping, even though I know you got a lot of exposure on MLB Network and with Poznanski and with Harold Reynolds and with Tip of the Cap and all these great things, I'm hoping that John Sherman and the Royals and everybody else in baseball gives you what I say is your, and by your, I mean the Negro League Museum, your due because it is a great story. It's personal to me because as I've told you, my, my buddy Dave Nelson grew up in Watts, had a tough time getting through uh, the minor league, suffered a lot of things that we don't need to go into, but ultimately because his mom said, Jackie Robinson made the sacrifice, get your butt back to the baseball folks. Same story Billy Williams has, and I'm sure you've heard it a lot. It's just a great story yeah. and it doesn't ever end but how in the world uh number one did you get this love for baseball because i know you played college baseball and then i want to talk about buck because he was a scout when my family had the uh, omaha royals and uh buck would be there behind home plate with his radar gun when nobody knew buck you know <laughs> back in 1985 so how in the world did you get this bug of baseball? It, it, it started when I was a kid growing up in rural Georgia, Crawfordville, Georgia. Crawfordville, Georgia is about 80 miles east of Atlanta, 50 miles west of Augusta, 40 miles away from Athens, about 40 miles away from Macon. And so simply located north central part of the state. And, and my, my father was a baseball fan. All of my brothers were athletic. They loved the game of baseball. I'm the youngest of six boys. So I think I just kind of inherited, inherited it naturally and became a fan of this game probably when I was maybe five years old, like taught myself how to read a box score out of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, Henry Aaron, the late great Henry Aaron is my all-time favorite major league ball player, my childhood idol. And with, you know, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, the favorite person that I've ever toured through this museum. So Henry Aaron checks all the boxes with me, but I fell in love with the game. But my town was too small to field a high school baseball program. We only had basketball and track. Crawfordville is about 500 people, man. And, and so we only had basketball and track. And, and I think any and everybody who knows me know that I do not believe in running if there's not a ball involved. Just running for the sake of running. So track was automatically out. And so I gravitated to basketball, which is how I ended up here in the Kansas City area. I got a basketball scholarship of all things. 
wow. to Park College, now Park University. Right. And so I played a couple of years of small college basketball, NAIA. And, uh, you know, and so I was on the team. I didn't get a chance to play that much, but I was on the team. And, and so, but I broke my foot in my, the beginning of my junior year. And that was the end of the basketball career for me. At that point in time, I stopped and started to concentrate solely on my studies and trying to get out of school and trying to figure out what the next chapter of my life was going to be. But I've always been in love with baseball. And then I'm working for the Kansas City Star, 1993. I started working for the Star right out of college, 1985. But now I'm, I've graduated, so to speak, into the Star's promotions department, which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And so we were doing some amazing things to support nonprofit organizations with various campaigns and providing promotional space to, to support those campaigns. Well, the Negro League Baseball Museum was one of those great nonprofits. And so my boss, good guy named Daryl Durham, came to me that day and said, hey, I got a project that I think is perfect for you. The Negro League Baseball Museum has approached us about promoting an, an exhibition, a traveling exhibition called Discover Greatness. And I got involved with that campaign, put the campaign together. We had some success. Now, you got to remember, at that time, the museum was in that little one-room office here at 18th and Vine, and we were going to utilize the storefront space right on the corner of 18th and Vine, where the corner restaurant is right now, to put this exhibition in. And so there was nothing else here at 18th and Vine at that time. 18th and Vine had essentially been left abandoned, left to die. And, and so here's this little museum, this fledgling museum, that was coming along to try to help resurrect 18th and Vine. This was one of the first projects that they were going to embark on. And I drew the assignment of promoting that traveling exhibition. Well, James, we drew some 10,000 people to historic 18th and Vine during the month of August of 1993. The campaign was an overwhelming success. And that prompted the officials here to ask me if I would consider joining their board of directors. And, and of course I was honored. I mean, it was a tremendous honor. And, and so I got involved as a volunteer member of, of the board and started doing a lot of the marketing, PR, advertising things for the museum as a volunteer. But man, when I was introduced to this story, I quickly realized that I didn't know as much about this game as I thought I did because there was this entire chapter of baseball and Americana that I really didn't know very much about at all. I knew the names Satchel Page and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson. Right. Those are transcending names. Absolutely. Most baseball fans, you know what I mean? Have totally. Least, totally yeah, they, know what you mean. Yeah, they've heard of those names. Even if you don't know just how truly great they were, you've at least heard those names. Absolutely. But I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude that this history represented both on and off the field. And that's when I became almost engrossed in it. Man, I wanted to learn as much as I could, James, and I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about it. And like I mentioned early on, that's when I met Buck O'Neill. And it's amazing to me that as small a social circle as Kansas City is, particularly within the African-American community, that Buck and I, our paths had never crossed before. I had heard the name, but I didn't really know him. And I didn't meet him until 1993. And when I met Buck for the very first time, 
I asked him, I said, Buck, what motivated you to want to build a Negro Leagues Museum? And James, he looked at me and, and very succinctly, but very poignantly says, so that we would be remembered. Yeah. And, and that was his quest, so that they wouldn't be forgotten for their contributions, not only to our sport, but more importantly, to our country. And, and that is still the quest. That is still the mission to preserve and celebrate and illuminate the history of this league and those courageous athletes who, as I like to say, forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. It was indeed, you know, f from 1860, really, until Jackie Robinson uh, broke the color barrier. And it's all well known and documented about that. But the rise of and, and the Leon days and the Rube Fosters and the and the and the and, and the folks that maybe are in the net double duty and the people that Buck would talk about like they were sitting next door and you all were just kind of just sitting around <laughs> talking because in Omaha, there's nothing. My uncle bought the team. There's nothing more than he enjoyed besides the chicken that would come and, and entertain. It was Buck. You know, he loved Buck and Buck, you know, would talk. And, and he was such a great storyteller and didn't really become famous until Ken Burns made him famous. But he would play oh. in golf tournaments around town. And, and he didn't really, I mean, he'd talk about, you name it, you know, you could drop whatever you wanted to drop and he would tell a beautiful story about it, but he wasn't, he didn't come across like, well, let me tell you why I, you know, what the problems were. And it, to me, I love uh, the, the stories of the Negro leagues. And I've been friends with Jerry Reinstorf for quite a while. And, and the one thing that there was so many fans that followed, you know, to municipal stadium, to Arthur Bryant's to watch the yeah. monarchs. Oh, and, yeah. and I say to, to the owners, where, where are those folks? And they claim that, well, 10 to 20% of our crowd are, are, are minorities. And I go, I don't see that. And it, to me, you've got the beautiful stories you tell, but I also wonder a, what happened to the fans and why is it even less a proportion than African-Americans in the major league. So it, it just, I know it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting because Mr. Reinsdorf has been tremendously supportive of this museum. And when we had our grand opening, this is 1997. This is before I actually joined the staff. At that time, we were having our grand opening celebration uh, for the new museum. Now, at this time, we've now moved from this one room office that we started this project in in, in 1990. And, and we had raised the, the funds to open up our new facility in our current home here at the museums at 18th and Vine. And we were having this, this grand, grand opening celebration. And I was fortunate enough to serve as one of the co-chairs of that event. And so Mr. Reinsdorf is here in support of the event. And one of my favorite memories was him walking through this new facility that we had created. And there was a picture of the great Sam Harrison. Sam Harrison, legendary Negro Leaguer, the last Negro Leaguer to win the Triple Crown, well, and, and the last player to win the Triple Crown in the Negro Leagues 
of course, generational family of professional baseball players with most recent two grandsons, Scott Harrison and Jerry Harrison Jr., who were major leaguers. And then, of course, their father was a major leaguer as well. So a generation of of several generations of Harrison's professional baseball players. But it starts with the great Sam Harrison. And Mr. Reinsdorf stood in front of that picture. And it became very emotional for him. He loved Sam Harrison. Sam Harrison worked for the White Sox for many, many years. Absolutely. Yeah, after he was retired from the game. And Jerry. Uh huh. Uh huh. And, and that moment uh, will forever be asked in my mind in, in terms of the sheer emotion of seeing that picture of his friend, the great Sam Harrison. And, and the White Sox most recently became the first major league team to raise a Negro League flag over their stadium. The flag of the Chicago American Giants now flies proudly over Guaranteed Rate Stadium. And I was on a call yesterday with their executive vice president, Kenny Williams. And we had a heart-to-heart conversation just about the organization and the organization's value of the Negro Leagues and the history there in Chicago and Rube Foster having been a Chicagoan, uh, lived and died there in Chicago, his role in helping organize the Negro Leagues and the brilliance of Rube Foster and Chicago's connection to this great history. And so, you know, when you mention his name and the White Sox organization, they've been so generous to the museum. Wow. And, and so there's a, uh, obviously, they hold a dear place in my heart. I don't know anybody more generous, more loyal, and more quiet about what he does mm-hmm. uh, than Jerry Reinstorf. Yeah. Very, very loyal. A funny, uh, I grew up, my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. His dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. And so I was a White Sox fan for, you know, uh, he took me to Comiskey Park in 1957. I saw Bob Keegan throw no hitter. I cried when Minnie Minoso got traded to the uh, Cleveland Indians the year that Al Smith came in and the White Sox won the, the uh, pennant and, and lost to the Dodgers. But Jerry Reinsdorf was uh, very supportive of uh, Dave Nelson when Nelly was a coach with the 83 White Sox and, and before. And, um, you know, I can't say enough about Jerry. Then Dave felt like the uh, African-Americans really were not getting adequate representation in the minor league kids coming up. And so we started uh, a, a company that, that never really did well financially, but we had uh, Al Jones, who saved Tom Seaver's first three American League wins, who was a kid from, went to Alcorn State, uh, mm-hmm. named Alfornia, toothpick, uh, got hurt. Uh, and I, I represented Kenny Williams for a while early in his career, and then a host of of other guys who ultimately fired me and had better agents. <laughs> and I, I stuck with the lawn. I'll never forget Reinsdorf one time down in Sarasota when they still train there. goes, Jamie, uh, you still doing that sports agency stuff? And I go, yeah, Jerry, I am. He goes, well, do you play poker? I go, yeah, why? And he goes, what do you do when you have a really bad hand? I said, you fold. He goes, that's what you ought to do with your, with your... <laughs> I'll never forget that. I, like I've, I've, I've had a lot of nice times with, with, uh, with, 
with Jerry and Roland Heeman. Uh, you know, and, they, uh, they, yeah, no, and you know, we were we we're so glad to see Roland Heeman receive the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award a few years ago. And I know what Roland meant to Buck, and and I know what that award meant to to Roland. Yeah, and, and so that connection between the Negro Leagues Museum, the great city of Chicago, but in particular the White Sox organization which for so many years Comiskey Park was the was home to the Chicago American Giants and the vaunted East-West All-Star Game Classic where they were putting over 50,000 people in Comiskey yeah. for the Negro League's version of the All-Star Game. And it made me also think about Satchel, the great Satchel Paige. And, and James Satchel is now with the Cleveland Indians in 1948. And the old man, when he joined the, the Indians in 48, he was coming out of the bullpen. And, and quite frankly, that year, and, and remember, you have to recall, Satchel goes six and one with a ridiculous 2.4 ERA, his rookie season with the Cleveland Indians in 1948 at age 42, which means he likely could have been closer to 52. <laughs> well, most of the runs he gave up that season, he gave them up coming out of the bullpen. And so once the old man, because he didn't get there until July. And so I think they wanted him to get his legs underneath him, making that transition from the Negro Leagues over to the major leagues. And, and so they finally put the old man in the, in, the, in the rotation. His first start is in Washington, D.C. for the Washington Senate, playing against the Washington Senators. Sure. And it was a rare kind of off day for Satchel. His control and his control was were always impeccable. And, and so he gives up three runs early in the game, and then he settles down, and they win that game five to three. Now they move over to Comiskey to play the White Sox. And they got a capacity crowd in the ballpark to see the old man pitch. But James, they had to turn away another 12,000-plus wow. that wanted to get into the ballpark and couldn't, and, and Satchel beats the White Sox five to nothing, and, and he shuts them out, and now they move back over to Cleveland, and they're playing the White Sox again, and this time, it's a night game, and they got over 78,000 people yeah, in the ballpark. Yeah, big, big ballpark. Big ballpark. Big ballpark set it at that time, an all-time night game major league record. Wow. Seven, eight thousand plus. The old man shuts out the White Sox again. A one to nothing three hit gym. And now he is off and running. But his first three starts in Major League Baseball drew over 200,000 people. Now, I don't know if Bill Vett who at that time was likely the only guy that would have given Satchel a chance. The other owners would have completely dismissed Satchel as simply saying he was too old. So I don't know if Bill Vec knew that the old man still had some gas in the tank. And the old man certainly had some gas in the tank, but he knew he'd be a huge draw. Yeah. And he that knew was he'd be a huge draw. And was... that he was. Uh, and, and then at that point, Cleveland would win the pennant. You know, they only won the pennant by one game that season. And, and so they don't win the pennant if it's not Satchel, if Satchel's not there. And, and then they go on and win the World Series. It was the last time Cleveland won the World Series 
1948 with Satchel Paige and the great Larry Doby. So I've got the 1953 Topps Satchel Paige card, which is yeah, just a beauty. beautiful. Oh, it's a beauty. <laughs> and I know, I know that Al Lopez managed in 54, and they, the Indians won the pennant lost the uh, world series i believe and i don't was satchel still on the team and no he's with the he, he's with the browns by that time okay yeah he's over in the set with the st louis browns by that time and um i think yeah because he, he stayed with the tribe for two years and then went over to join the st louis browns where he was there for a couple of years and uh, matter of fact he made his only two all-star games with the st louis browns yeah. Which means he was probably 46, 47 years old, which means he could have been 56, 57 years old, because most believe he was at least 10 years older than what he claimed. And he made his first two All-Star games with the St. Louis Browns. And so by 53, 54, he might have been actually out of baseball uh, there for a little while. But, you know, Satchel was amazing. Yeah, he was absolutely amazing. Um, and. What a showman. And, you know, you had 52,000 capacity at Comiskey. I knew that for a, I knew yeah. that growing yeah. up. And then I remember uh, my buddy uh, Nelly was coaching for the Indians the last year they played at municipal, at, yeah, municipal stadium, mistake on the lake. And uh, they had a funny sign that said like 73,000 season tickets available for next year. And they were, <laughs> about to move about to move out but you know leon day was a great pitcher and a lot of oh. I, mean, I could go we could go on and on but i want to talk about two things the legacy awards because i think i met you uh nelly came to the legacy awards i'm not sure what year it was but mudcat grant was there and i yeah, bought his yeah. i bought his book uh the black aces which is a yeah. great great book and uh, i know the legacy awards are uh, kind of no longer on site, which I think's unfortunate. And and then the other thing I want to talk about before I let you go, and God love you for doing this, and I want to do it again. Uh, it just whether it's a podcast or lunch, um, the Hall of Games, which yes. if you could tell us a little bit about the Hall of Games, I, I yeah. think it's a yeah. great, great, great thing that you did there. Yeah, no, I, I tell you what, and it has been so well received. The Hall of Game annually honors former major leaguers, James, who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. So you played it with passion. You obviously played it with a great level of skill, but you also played the game with a little flair, or as the kids would say, a little swag, because you had to have that if you were playing in the Negro Leagues. You know, they understood that this game was entertainment at its highest form. And it didn't mean that you weren't going to see great fundamental baseball. It just meant that you were going to see a far more exciting brand of baseball than really what Major League Baseball was serving up at that time. And, and so this, this celebration embodies the spirit of the Negro Leagues. And so each year we induct a class who we feel that played that game the way they did it. And we've been fortunate. We've had people we honored posthumously, the late, great Roberto Clemente. And, and of course, the late, now the late Joe Morgan and Lou Brock, um, Tim Raines and Maury Wills. And, you know, the list just kind of goes on and on through the years of people that we felt embodied that spirit. And 
it's been it's been so well received, and, and the guys enjoy it. It's a great fundraiser for the museum. It kind of took the place of the former Legacy Awards. Now I still hand out Legacy Awards. We still honor current major leaguers with these awards in the name of Negro League players. We just stopped doing the banquet right. because it was just getting too difficult to get the young athlete to come to Kansas City in January uh, before spring training. Sure. And, and so we stopped doing the, the banquet aspect of this, but we still hand out awards and either I will go into the ballparks or when those American League teams or in the case of interleague play, they come into Kansas City, I try to get them by the museum and present them with their award because we still want to keep that bridge. We still want to make that connection with them and the history of this sport. And, well, and it's important. It's important to do so. That the bridge that you talk about is so very important. And there's so many guys that I call it the flannel era. When I started watching, these guys were wearing flannel uniforms. <laughs> but I, I go back to the guys that maybe not the Ernie Banks and the and the and the Aaron's who played in the Negro Leagues and then transitioned right at that you know early 1950s. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the guys like Billy Williams who were totally influenced by the Jackie Robinsons and 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 Larry Doby and I love Larry Doby and I, I wish that I, I wish more people understood how important larry doby was monty irvin yeah. was new all oh, these absolutely. guys yeah. but but yeah. be that as it may there's that the guys that may not have been in the negro leagues but but were influenced in 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 my day the pumpsy greens the guys like all these guys and then i go back to uh sam jethro and the guys that integrated yeah. you know the yeah. i mean i i just it's such yeah. a fascinating well, it's, era it's, it's funny that you say that or you mentioned that because we just opened a brand new exhibition here at the museum called Barrier Breakers. And the Barrier Breaker exhibit, James, chronicles all of the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson joining Brooklyn in 1947 through the late great Elijah Pumsey Green right. being the last to complete the integration cycle 12 years later with the Boston Red Sox. And, and that surprises a lot of people that it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. Yeah. But the thing yeah. that you alluded to was the real reason why we did this exhibition. Larry Doby would break the color barrier in the American League just weeks after Jackie. Right. And he is the forgotten man. He is almost an afterthought. It has only been over the last decade or so that people have finally started to pay tribute to Larry Doby's pioneering role in this game as well. And it didn't get any easier for Larry Doby when he joined Cleveland than it did for Jackie. Truth of the matter is, it didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green 12 years later. They all had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to blaze their path to pursue their major league careers. And so we felt like they deserve to be more than just a footnote in baseball and American history. And, and I think it speaks to the fact that if we don't tell these stories, who will? And, and so we're chronicling all of their stories. And what I think is so cool, we also document what really set the stage for integration 
in our sport. And if we were going to point to any one single event, it would have been World War II. And, and with World War II, you had the irony of these young black soldiers dying, fighting the exact same racism in another country that we were being asked to accept here at home. And there, were, there became this growing sentiment of if they can die fighting for their country, why can't they play baseball in this country? And, and, and that is what ultimately gave Branch Rickey the needed momentum and the timing to go make this move. And he signs Jackie away. Wait, he didn't sign Jackie. He took Jackie away from the Kansas City Monarchs yeah. into his organization. Because that's a whole other story. He didn't sign him away. He took him from the Kansas City Isn't Monarchs. I know. That's and, how uh, uh, and, and, of course, then Jackie would break the color barrier and how dramatically that changed things in our society. And then it opens the door for these other Black and Hispanic players to now move into the major leagues. Of course, it put the Negro Leagues out of business. It did. Uh -huh, it did. It put the it Negro did. Leagues out of business. But it also accelerated social change in this country. You know, the other thing, because you've got the guys breaking the color barriers from Jackie to Larry to, to, to Pumpsy and uh and the jet that i just mentioned yeah the, yeah yeah no the, no the jet uh and, and, on and, on and on and on and on but the development the rise and the demise and the fall of of the massive minor league system as you know back in the 30s and the 40s there were there were literally thousands of minor leagues a b d i mean it went the, the three I league on and on and on. Oh yeah. And these guys, when they got to the major leagues, obviously sustained and, and, and suffered injustices that I just find unreal, but it happened. But in the minor leagues, as you oh. well know, the journey, oh. the journey that the Billy Williams or the Dave Nelson's or the Reggie Jackson's or whoever, you know, the Reggie may have cut, come up to the majors quicker, but, you know, without naming towns, there were areas that had never, uh, never seen an African-American oh, yeah. and to yeah. get housing to try to oh, find yeah. some places. Oh, it, to, oh. oh it, 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 it was so challenging. As challenging as it was in the major leagues, it was doubly challenging in the minor leagues. Amen. And so true. you hear the stories from the likes of Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, who was part of the Sally League. Oh, man, it was just brutal. And, uh, you know, Billy Williams, who had left the Cubs, Billy left the Cubs, right. left the Cubs. They were playing in San Antonio, spring training in San Antonio, Texas at that time. And the Cubs sent our friend Buck O'Neill to go get him. And, and Buck says, Billy, of course, was from Mobile, Whistler, Alabama. Yeah, Whistler, Whist. Just outside of Mobile. And, and Billy had gone home and the Cubs said, Buck, go get him. I'll see if you can bring him back. And Buck say, goes down and for three or four days, he never says anything to Billy about going back. He pick him up every day, drive him around, take him around to the ball fields. Everybody was so excited to see Billy Williams, their native professional ball player. 
And Buck says, after about four days, Billy looks at him and says, okay, Buck, I'm ready to go back. Buck lets the Cubs know that they're, they're, they're prize prospect ready to come back. And the Cubs say, okay, well, put him on the bus and, and send him back. And Buck said, uh-uh, I'm going to put him in my car. And Buck drove him from Whistler, Alabama to San Antonio, Texas. Billy William goes on to become sweet swinging Billy William. Sweet swinging number famer. 26. Uh-huh, Hall of Famer. And he will tell you today that he owes his career to the legendary Buck O'Neill. But that's the impact that Buck had on so many of those Black players that were part of the Cubs organization. Most of them he brought to the Cubs organization. And, but he was more than just a scout. Buck was a father-like figure for those kids. He nurtured them. He taught them social graces. You know, you will hear that same story from the late, great Ernie Banks and Lou Brock of what Buck O'Neill meant to them. George Altman, who is still with us, played in both the Negro Leagues and played in the Major Leagues. Played for played the Cubs. Here, yeah, played here for the Bucks, for Buck and the Monarchs before joining him with the Cubs. And George Altman still says to this day, and George Altman had a tremendous Major League career, very long Major League career, and then goes to Japan. And, and basically revitalize his career, he'll tell you to this day that Buck O'Neill was the greatest manager he ever played for. And because he said Buck just knew how to handle men. Yeah. He knew, he knew when to kick you in the rump and he knew when to put his arms around you and, and console you and nurture you. And so he seemed to bring out the best in all of his players. And the first African-American coach uh, in Major League Baseball. Later, and that doesn't get enough. And I, you know, the fact that Buck, he's got a statue at the Hall of Fame and an award, but he should be, he should be, you know, when you, yeah, when, when you look at the Baseball Hall of Fame almanac, Buck ought to, Buck ought to be there, no doubt about it. Yeah, he should but, have a flag. And I'm hopeful that it might happen this year. We don't know yet. He is supposed to be on the... Golden Era committee's back. I think hopefully and, and, the Reinstorfs of the world will get that done. And, and I think that if he's on the ballot, he has a great chance of getting in. Now, yeah. granted, James, I thought this in 2006. I did yeah, You know, we all thought it was a shoe-in that Buck was going to get in, and it didn't happen. So right. I have to prepare myself <laughs> mentally and emotionally for the event that he doesn't get in. Yeah. But my mindset has to be that he's going to get in. But, you know, um, I do have to prepare myself because that was tremendously draining, you know, for me that right. year that he didn't get in. So I can only imagine what it miss, must have been like for Buck because he was getting asked that question, you know, over and over and over again. And, and of course, he handled the defeat with such grace and class and humility you know, that's why we fell even deeper in love with Buck. Right. But I know it wore on him. And it was an emotional roller coaster for me. And then none of us knew that a few months after that, we were going to lose Buck. Yeah. Yeah. And so that conjures up all of those memories of what transpired in 2006. So, yeah, mentally and emotionally, I got to get prepared for this and make sure that I'm in the right frame of mind in the event that he doesn't get in. Well, and as as you're talking so eloquently and with such passion about Buck, I can hear him in my ear 
uh, you know, talking as you talk. I can hear Buck because he had just he just had that understated, wonderful ability to communicate with people. And you can see why he'd be a good manager, a good coach, a good scout, a good whatever ambassador for the game of baseball, the Negro Leagues, everything. And there's so many stories that that I'd love to get into with you and maybe another time. And I know you've got, <laughs> I know you've got a busier schedule than I do. So I'm going to let you go. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pause this little podcast before I, you know, do something wrong to erase it. But Bob, what a, <laughs> what a, what a pleasure and an honor to have you. And I just hope that down the road, uh, we can get another bit of time to talk about, uh, the statistics that the MLB oh, yeah. supposedly yeah. is going to uh, come up with, and also some of the things you're doing, like the vaccine program oh, at the yeah. Negro yeah. League Baseball Absolutely. Museum. God love you for that. Uh, yeah. People all over the country need that easy access to the vaccine. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, nowhere any more than in the 18th and Vine District and the use of the uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum. Yeah. What a great idea. Sure. Well, we were we were proud to be able to offer that kind of outreach. It is needed, and and so you know it doesn't happen without our friends over at High V, who had access to the vaccine and approached me about the idea. But for me, it was a no-brainer. Uh, this was, I thought, the perfect environment to be able to make the vaccine accessible to the community and to also help maybe temper some of the fears that are associated, particularly within the African-American community, there's still a level of distrust with the medical profession for things that had happened sure. historically. And, and we still have to get over, over that stigma. And, and so maybe doing it in the culturally enriched confines of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, maybe that helps reduce a little bit of that angst. And so I think it's kind of a double-edged sword for us that we were trying to overcome by doing it and making the museum this vaccination clinic. Now, on the same topic with the the pandemic going on, uh, is the museum open to the public? Yes. And yes. Do, you, do you need a reservation or can you just stop by? You can still just stop by. We try to recommend, well, we recommend that people go online because you can get a passport, which allows us to, to you know, for contact, tracing purposes, and you can buy your ticket online. That way it makes it a complete touchless experience, but you certainly can just stop in and get your passport, sign up and get your ticket on site as well. We are, uh, for the most part, we, we are open Tuesday, Tuesday through Thursday, now from 11 until five, uh, and then noon, uh, I'm sorry, Friday and Saturday, 10 to 5, and Sundays, uh, noon, to, noon to 5. And I know you're humble and all those good things, but if somebody listening wants to help out the Negro League Baseball Museum, uh, where can they uh, send a little bit of uh, relief no, no, to. No, 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 we we ain't that humble. No, we, we. <laughs> I didn't think so. I wanted to lead into it gently. <laughs> Send your money to Bob in the museum. No, no, we need we need the support and we encourage it. And if you are inclined to want to join our team, be a part of this work that we're doing to preserve, celebrate, educate the public about this history, 
but also to keep the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive, please visit our website at nlbm.com. There are places to donate. You can sign up to become a member of the organization. We have our online gift store that you can buy merchandise to, for yourself or to share with your baseball fan in your life. Or, or if nothing else, buy a ticket and come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's a fascinating place. It was the last time I was there. I'm looking forward to going back. Even though we're not doing the video feed, even though you and I are doing the video feed, maybe on the lighter side of baseball, we'll figure out how to do a live feed someday. But I can see that beautiful, one of the best hats in all of baseball, the, the oh. Kansas City Monarchs uh, hat. The Royals have had giveaways, the tickets uh, to the Hall of the Negro League Museum. You can go to the gift store. You can buy that same hat and a lot of other good stuff because the Monarchs are a great story. You're a great story. Yeah, it's fun yeah, to watch you know, you on TV. Time, I guess, you know, hopefully by the time you and I catch up again, the Monarchs will be playing again because our new Kansas City Monarchs minor league team starts play May 18th. And, and so we're excited about that as well. You know, the former Kansas City T-Bones, we, in a great partnership with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they've re and, and so they'll start playing over at the ballpark there in Western Wyandotte County. Our home opener is May 18th. And, and this is an exciting partnership that we forge with the, with the ball club in this rebranding effort and an opportunity to extend the museum over to Western Wyandotte County. And, you know, a partnership that provides annual support for the museum, but some uh, amazing other opportunities that come along with this partnership. So it's gonna be great to see these, these young ball players playing in independent baseball, but they still have hopes of getting sure. to the show. And, and some do. Young, yeah, to see these young ball players, James, put on those Monarch pinstripes and, and channel the spirit of Buck O'Neill and Satchel Paige and Willard Brown, Jose Mendez, and, and to see that spirit come back to life, yet also in the process help educate a new generation of baseball fans about the history of baseball and the heritage of baseball in our great city. Yep. And also give people that, whether they're black, white, brown, whatever, the opportunity to enjoy uh, groups of people that may not look like them. Exactly. But exactly. understand them better. It cannot yeah. do anything but help yeah. our community. Well, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what this story is all about. You the say Negro it more League. eloquently than I do. <laughs> the Negro League, the Negro League didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play? That's all. And they could play. So as we kind of look at this today with some of the ills that are rearing its ugly head in our society, if we can use the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues to help bridge the racial divide in our country, then that just helps. That I think it just fortifies how important this museum is. And, and I'm just thrilled that people are responding to this organization in that manner. And, and, and again, you touched on something. It's about helping create greater understanding 
sensitivity, tolerance for people who don't look like us. Right. You know, and and and, and all of that is embedded in this story. So, I'll leave you with this. I my I love Dave Nelson like more than a brother. So when he was in Iowa, he was one of the more educated guys on the team. And there were two or three other African-Americans on the Indians minor league team. And this was in, you know, probably the mid sixties. And the manager said, Dave, go find a place for you and the two other guys to live. And so Dave got the paper, looked in the one ad, saw a couple ads and, and went to a lady's home knocked on the door and he could see her looking at her and she had probably in, in his belief never had seen a black person ever and she wouldn't answer the door so the next day dave goes by before the game knocks on the door and he sees her coming starting to walk towards the door but never opened it the next day and this is truly the heart of dave nelson he brings a dozen roses with him and she sees him in the window and opens the door and to make a long story short, they became the greatest friends. In fact, she would drive, <laughs> this little lady and I would every year drive to Chicago for a series when the White Sox were playing somebody and Dave was coaching to visit with Dave. And I'm sure there are thousands of those stories. stories like that. Absolutely. And that's, it's spectacular. And that's what it's all that, about. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that is, is well, thank you for your time. Thank you for doing yes, what sir. you do. I'm going to put you on hold real briefly if I can figure this out. Hold on. Well, we are back on the lighter side of baseball after a short break following the spectacular interview with Bob Kendrick. What a great guy. What a great voice for Kansas City sports, Kansas City baseball, and just the great culture in Kansas City. I'm telling you what, we touched on a bunch of subjects, but we didn't even dent what I want to get into here in the near future. I want to talk more about The Black Aces, the book by Jim Mudcat Grant. I want to talk about each one of those guys. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Independent League Kansas City Monarchs that are coming to you out at the stadium in Wyandotte County. I want to talk to you about the museum. I want to go see some of the exhibits. I want to do a live podcast out there. I want to do everything that I can to promote this great sport and including the Negro League Baseball Museum. So anyway, I had a blast and I cannot wait to visit again with Bob Kendrick. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize the relationship he had with Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, with Kenny Williams. Uh, I certainly knew that Buck O'Neill was an inspiration to him as he was to anybody that came in touch with, Bob, with uh, Buck. And so that was fun. It was just fun. His, his electricity, his contagious personality, I can't say enough. I, I anticipated it because I had seen him on MLB Network, and I had seen him uh, celebrating Black History Month in various segments, and I had listened to him. And when, and, and I even said when we were talking out of my uh, ear, I could hear Buck O'Neill coming through loud and clear. And so now we can only hope that Buck gets inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame uh, this year by the Golden Era Committee, if there was anybody more golden 
than Buck O'Neill. I don't know who that would be. But man, oh man, there are so many stories. If you are looking for some books to read, in addition to The Black Aces by Mudcat, uh, read only The Ball Was White. Uh, it's a great it's a great book. There's a lot of books about Satchel, and Bob talked a lot about Satchel Page. Uh, there's the Negro League Baseball. There is an encyclopedia. I mean, there's a lot of literature out there. And uh, for you folks that don't like to read much more than me, I say go on down to the uh, 18th and Vine District and uh, get yourself into the Negro League Baseball Museum. Wow, what a great day. I am looking forward to the sequel of this, and uh, I can only uh, only look forward to that. So, listen to a little of the music that uh, Tyler puts into the broadcast, and just reflect a little bit on uh, the spectacular institution that uh, helped to make baseball great in Kansas City, and it still is to this day. So we're getting ready for opening day. The Royals, Salvi has a new contract. Solaire tore up the uh, Cactus League, and we hope that Ben Attendi can uh, have a good year, Hunter Dozier, and then the pitchers. So I think the future is bright with John Sherman and the Royals. The future is bright with the Kansas City Monarchs, and the future is bright with Bob Kendrick. So things are looking up in Kansas City, and until our next podcast, this is Jamie Reske on the lighter side of baseball wishing you a great, great weekend. And when you can tune in to Spotify, Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, or our up-and-coming, soon-to-be-announced webpage, woohoo! And if you get into the Negro League Museum social media page, you're going to find this podcast. Yes, sirree, Bob. So have a good weekend. Hit them straight. And we will talk to you next week with Craig Kashan as we make our predictions for the 2021 pennant. 162 games coming to you, and what could be better? Till then, Jamie Reske, have a great day. <laughs>